Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm here with Terry Fakes today. We're doing a question and answer for the month of November. We've got some great questions from listeners and we subscribers, do. people that text and email in, info at sowespeak.com. Uh, you can ask any question anytime and we typically respond to those and then we save them for the podcast. So you don't just have to wait until we right. get around to a Q&A podcast. Um, I just want to say thank you to everybody that listens and subscribes, people that read the Weekly Speak read our blog entries, listen to our podcast, watch Bible study videos, engage on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, this is beginning to be a big community of people, and we couldn't do this without you. And so thanks to you guys who support us financially. Thanks for everybody that prays for us. Thanks for the people that like and share and give reviews for the podcast and posts and things on social media. We could not do this without you, and we see it as a ministry to you, equipping you to think Christianly about the world, and so thanks for making that happen. So we're going to do four questions today, unless in the course of these questions we end up with more questions, in which case we'll do more than that. But we're going to start out with a question uh, from, from a listener who... Asked a question I think a lot of people have asked in different ways. And I just thought this one puts it in a context that uh, really gets to the heart of this issue. And I'll read you part of this question. So, hey, I've been listening to Megan Kelly's podcast, and she had Rick Grinnell on. He's going to be the future uh, director of national uh, intelligence. And he is not only a gay conservative, but a man of deep faith. And uh, I'll summarize some of this. What he's, what he's asking is, if you listen to somebody like Rick Grinnell, it seems like he's a committed Christian, he's a conservative, he shares our values in a lot of ways, and our faith. Mm-hmm. And he, on the podcast, he goes into some arguments, and some of the ones that you hear a lot. The word homosexuality wasn't used in the Bible before you know a certain time in history. Mm-hmm. The Bible's really not talking about consensual, same-sex, lifelong committed partnerships. You know, the, he makes a couple of those arguments and basically says, "I think God can bless my relationships as a gay man, and I can serve Christ and love Christ and be a Christian." And so the question is, you know, th- this sounds good. That's not what I think the text says, but how can I know? You know, when I listen to these arguments, maybe the wording is different, or maybe I didn't know, you know, the way that this was understood in the Greco-Roman world. And so, in some ways, uh, the the question is, what would you say to someone who argues that way from the text about homosexuality, being a Christian, and what the writings originally meant? Well, that's a big question. I have a lot of thoughts. Let me see if I can give you at least a short thread. First of all, I'd make this observation. Both the history of the church, the history of understanding the Bible, and the text, the plain sense of the text itself, are both unfavorable for the point of view that someone would espouse that homosexuality can be, is not sinful in the Bible, that the Bible actually teaches that it's, uh, that it's acceptable. So first of all, neither history nor the Bible is friendly to that point of view. Secondly, what you'll hear a lot of is people trying to critique the traditional understanding and say things like, in the ancient world, pederasty was more common than etc., which that's not true. But my point is you might 
critique that, or you might say there isn't a specific word for homosexuality before a certain period of time in the language. Uh, Those things, while they suffer from a lack of precision, Mm -hmm. they're not entirely true. But here's the bigger point I want to make. Even if, even if you could argue the Bible doesn't mean what you think it means, you've only gone one step which means, okay, I've just showed you the Bible doesn't mean what you think it means. You still haven't demonstrated your thesis, which is that in this particular case, and I would say this about anything, uh, we happen to just be talking about homosexuality, uh, homosexual acts, homosexual relationships, because this is a more nuanced issue than Mm -hmm. I'm able to get into here. But you've really only gone half the way. So I'll stop there by making those two observations. Mm -hmm. History and the text are not favorable. Secondly, tearing down what you believe the text to be and 2,000 years of Christians have thought the text meant, even if you were successful, you still haven't accomplished your thesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this question strikes me on a couple of different fronts. One is the difference between the way we evaluate people and the way we evaluate doctrines. So, for example, you take someone like Rick Grinnell, who by all appearances is a great guy, Mm -hmm. and it forces you to come to grips with him as a human being and say, but he seems pretty awesome. How can you say that this part of his identity or you know, how he defines himself, is bad. He seems to share all of our values. That, on the one hand, is how we typically talk about things like sexuality, LGBTQ issues. And I, that's something maybe we can come back to in a moment. Mm-hmm. What I think the, the question is really getting to, though, is what is the textual witness? Right. And how do we evaluate these arguments he's making about homosexuality, sexuality of any kind? And... Uh, I think that difference is helpful. Yes, I will, I will say this about folks making the argument. Arguments fall into two categories. One are kind of pop arguments, the Matthew Vines, the Unclobbers, etc. I don't. I would suggest you not take any of those arguments terribly seriously. And I don't, I'm not trying to be pejorative here. I'm not trying to say anything negative. I'm simply making the assessment. Those arguments are not serious studies of the text. Those are have a lot of emotion in them. They have a lot of uh, they have a lot of things in them that aren't rigorous mm-hmm. thinking at all. Yeah. So if I, I were I'm, to summarize all those arguments, I would say the argument essentially goes: this person is really likable, therefore what they can what they're doing can't be sinful, and that's a pop argument. Right? It's, it's not a good argument, but it is empathic. Oh, and I and I that's what the popular completely do. understand the idea of empathy, but you wouldn't read anything else that way. Right? If you actually want to know what it actually means. I'll tell you who I have the most respect for on the liberal. And now I'm going to go to the next level of serious people, serious uh, scholars. Uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, with whom I agree on almost nothing, but I really like this comment. He, I'm going to paraphrase this, but he basically said uh, he, was, he was frustrated with people who make the argument you're just saying. He said, we need to quit making this argument. Here's the bottom line. The Bible univocally speaks against homosexual practice and lifestyle, not necessarily feelings, urges. So again, I said this is a little more nuanced. He said, we need to quit doing that. We acknowledge that the Bible speaks, the text speaks against it. We simply appeal to a different 
standard. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a biblical scholar who's at least being honest. Mm -hmm. William Loder has done a very scholarly work on this subject. Uh, He and Robert Gagnon are on different sides of this issue, but both have written very exhaustive texts on it. William Loder uh, believes that same-sex acts, lifestyle, etc., however we want to characterize that, homosexual lifestyle, is acceptable within Christianity, but he does not think the Bible says that. In other words, I think if you approach this and let the text say what it wants to say, and I think you'll see the body of scholars, I'm not talking about pop stuff now, scholars will say the text is not favorable to this. So from a textual point of view, yeah, you're going to deal with people as people, but Mm -hmm. the question is about what does the text say? Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's as much disagreement about that, frankly, as people think there is. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think this division is artificial in some ways, but incredibly helpful in other ways. Mm -hmm. So dividing our experience with people we know versus what we believe the text actually says Mm -hmm. is important. Yes. If, If not only just to establish what the text says. And then like we say... We, we have several examples of people who believe that the text says what we believe it says, and they believe you should do something completely different about it. Right. But at least at that point, we're working from a common understanding of what the text says. The pop arguments, the problem with the pop arguments, like a Jen Hatmaker, for example, is they're willing to say, I don't think the text says that. And they're going to do something different in experience. But they, the point is, we can't even reach a common ground about what this text actually says. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think we have to start. And so th- that's one of the things I really think is insightful about this Rick Grinnell question is it, it, it's not a pop argument kind of question. It's a, what do you make of his claims about the text? And, um, you know, I, I want to make an observation here. When you talk about this issue, and I would almost guarantee this will happen with this podcast, and we welcome these conversations. Somebody will say something along the lines of, you guys talked about all this and you didn't mention the oppression of minor- sexual minorities over the ages. You didn't mention that Christians have persecuted these people. You didn't mention what these people have gone through. And I always think when I, when I, when I read something like that, when somebody responds, number one, this is coming from a person who feels that experience in some way or another. Mm-hmm. And that is very real. Now, we can debate how accurate that narrative is. I think that's overplayed in a lot of different ways. We could even agree with the substantial portion of that narrative and grieve over it. Absolutely. But the fact of the matter is, that doesn't change what we're trying to establish, which is, what does the text say about this? We can talk about how people have put it into practice all day long, but we've got to have a starting point. And the starting point for evangelical Christians is what does the text say? Because there's a very interesting kind of Gnosticism at work here. If you don't care what the text says, you only care about experience, or if you don't care what's right and wrong based on anything other than what has historically happened, then you can't actually advocate for any kind of standard or revolution or turnaround in the way that we approach this topic because the only thing you're using to evaluate is the perception of people towards the actions of other people with no determining standard with which to judge either of their actions. Right. So we actually have to say, what do we believe is true? What do we believe is right? And once we establish that, we who believe in inerrancy, we believe high view of Scripture, God didn't just say what he said arbitrarily. 
He didn't just make up things out of thin air and be like, you know what, I think, um, you know, marriage between a man and a woman, that seems good. Marriage between man and man, that seems bad. So let's just decree that. No. These commands and the way these texts speak is all rooted in the way that God has created us. Mm-hmm. He knows the way that we are supposed to function, whether that's in our spiritual lives, whether that's sexually, whether that's in other relationships. He knows how we were made to function. And he has commanded us in ways that lead to our flourishing. And so we don't have to be ashamed of what the Bible says. A lot of times you hear people say, I wish the Bible said something different. And I understand the sentiment behind that, but it shows a misunderstanding, sometimes an honest misunderstanding, Mm -hmm. of the purpose of biblical commands, which is to lead human beings back into relationship with God and to the flourishing for the way that they were designed to live. Mm -hmm. And as hard as some of the Bible's teaching on sexuality is in our day today, because of the relationships we have, because of the feelings that some of us struggle with, because of the things that you know, complicate doctrine, they cloud our ability to say, God has commanded these things for my good, and I have got to figure out what he says and do it, even if it's difficult, because I know it ends up at a, at a place where I want to be reunited with him. Mm-hmm. So I just see that as a proviso for the people who are wondering, yeah, but what about what's actually happened? Well, what's happened is a product always of what we believe about what God has said and what he's doing in the world. And those arguments, I think, sometimes honestly mistake what we believe God is doing with what people have done in the past. So I I guess with that said, I kind of want to turn to these arguments and say, you know, we can't cover all of this in a podcast episode. We can go through a couple of these arguments on a textual basis. And again, that's what I would say. But some people are going to listen to this and say, wow, that hurts my feelings, or I'm angry, or whatever, that's telling you that we're no longer discussing the text. Uh, Because this isn't about, uh, the text says this, therefore, I hate you, or I condemn you, or whatever. That's not where this is going. But we're going to have a hard time having any kind of dialogue, which we are, having Mm -hmm. that kind of trouble in our society, when we aren't even willing to say what the text says. Again, I'll go back to Luke Timothy Johnson, who acknowledges this is what the text says. I simply want to appeal to a different standard. We can have a discussion about that. So let's start out with the first one, which is the word homosexuality wasn't used in the Bible until modern translations. And I I always laugh a little bit at this because this is one of those things that's like, you think the word homosexuality is bad and offensive? Do you know what they used in the King James? They used the word sodomite in, mm-hmm. the, in King James. So, yes, technically the word homosexual was not used. But we don't use the word sodomite today because it is a very pejorative term. Now, it right. communicates something that's true without some of the connotations that word has today. But that used to be what people referred to homosexuality as. And so it's a little bit of a sleight of hand when people make this argument to say, well, this concept didn't exist or this argument didn't exist. The the concept concept most certainly exists. And they use the term that I think we shouldn't probably use in Bible translation, but it wasn't the word homosexuality. It was the word sodomite. And uh, that leads me to another argument that I'll cover to you that people make a lot on this topic, which is the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah weren't sexual in nature. You hear this a lot. uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is not an example of sexual depravity. It is an example of the refusal to welcome 
the sojourner or the neighbor. It's a refusal of the commandment to love your neighbor. It's not a judgment on their sexual mores. And so there's a disconnect there between what the word sodomy has has represented and what the biblical witness is. How do you typically answer that argument? I usually don't get into that one for two reasons. Number one, uh, it's not the basis for this doctrine of teaching. I mean, it's it simply not. It doesn't even need to come up in this conversation if you don't want it to. It's, right. And secondly, it's uh, that's that idea is working awfully hard to avoid an obvious conclusion. Yes. Uh, I mean, I'm just saying that as a disinterested person. My attitude on the text is I want to remove as many of my biases as I can. I don't think anybody reading the plain sense of that would come to that conclusion. I think they would come to the same conclusion that Romans 1 does. Here's what I would suggest. Read that story. Read Romans 1. In Romans chapter 1, you see homosexual lifestyles, uh, activities as a sign. Not the only sign, not the worst sign. It is used as a sign of the depravity of humanity, of humanity's downward cycle. It doesn't mean that's the only sin. Don't misunderstand me here, but Paul uses it to say even something this clear, because he thought this was very clear, Mm -hmm. and so did Jesus, as a matter of fact. He said, you see this. I think that's what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. I believe there are archetypal parallels between those two stories. So I would say that if you simply want to take out of it the lack of hospitality, and that's why they were destroyed, you're probably trying too hard to substantiate something that that does not seem to be in the text. There are going to be a lot of other textual hurdles that you need to get over. And one of them being that Jude interprets the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as a sexual sin problem. Uh, But the rest of the biblical witness is going to be a big, big problem for you, even if you invalidate that story. And I think the attempt behind invalidating that argument on that story is to move the the syntactical argument back another step and say, well, then when they said sodomy, they didn't mean, because sodom wasn't actually that. But there's no argument that that's not what it meant in English usage. So th- these are not great arguments. Another argument that you hear on this topic um, is Jesus never said anything explicitly about homosexuality, which if, if that's the way you talk about people mentioning things, <laughs> there's a lot of things that are going to be really questionable about the Bible. It's true that he doesn't use that word, but how do you typically respond to this argument? Well, first of all, that's another that's a pop argument in the sense that, well, he never said this word, therefore what? <laughs> what is your Arguments point? Arguments from silence the like that. The or... point then, the implication that's never stated is, therefore it must be okay. Right. And now no sane person is going to go, what? That's yeah. why that second part's never uttered. It's a pop argument just trying to say, well, I want to tear this down, your traditional understanding. He never really said it. It's just a bunch of people over the last 2,000 years that hated gay people. Right. Okay. I, I hear that. That's not, it has no You're validity. Paul, Paul now let's go, or something yeah, like let's that. go to the text. So the word for sexual immorality, porneia, por, you know, where we get our word pornography, but it simply is translated immorality, sexual immorality, sometimes but not often, sexual impurity. That word is used by Jesus quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And what did Jesus mean by the word sexual immorality? Well, if I went out today and I asked 10 different people, I might get 10 different answers. Right. But honestly, 
if you if you have any kind of integrity, you're going to look at it and you say, well, when Jesus said that, what did he mean by that? Well, I can tell you exactly what Jesus meant by that. He mm-hmm. meant everything that was included in the law of Moses, which he was, uh, which speaks against sexual immorality is, is adultery and sex when you're not married and a man lying with another man and a woman lying with another woman and off into even other things. I'm, right. I'm just stop there. So you, if you say he never said the word homosexuality, he never said the word bestiality. Is exactly. that okay? Uh, now that's a stupid thing I'm saying, but that's because it's a really stupid argument. Right. So yes, when Jesus speaks of sexual immorality, he's talking about quite a few things. Well, he, he and that's he, a that's a you know raises the bar in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, "You've heard it said, do not commit adultery." Right. And I say to you, if you even lust after someone in your heart, you committed adultery. Right. And that covers almost everything. Yeah. So th- that, that, that's one of the ways that the actual core ethic of the Bible, the core argument of why and how we approach these topics is a much better way to reason biblically than to nitpick certain commands and syntactical words and phrases and uh, you know, argue over what the etymology is. The core logic of the Bible is clear. From, gener- from Genesis to Revelation, God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman for life exclusively. And um, anything outside of that is condemned. Lusting, actions, anything. Now, you get nuance all through the Bible. One of the biggest ones is Jesus giving qualifications on permissible divorces, for example. Mm-hmm. You get that teaching. You get the teaching in, in Paul's letters about uh, an even further reason of why you shouldn't engage in sexual immorality because it's sin against your own body. Mm-hmm. So you, you get a lot of nuance, but that framework, that boundary line is consistent through all of Scripture. And for all instances, I mean, we happen to just be responding to a question about homosexuality, but this is a much broader topic than mm-hmm. that. This is not picking on any particular behavior. Jesus has, and Paul have... The Bible has a lot of things in mind with this, right. and there's a purpose behind it. Um, so, yes, I, I would agree. I, and again, it's difficult to have this conversation, which is surprising, because we're talking about what does the text say, mm-hmm. uh, not talking about, well, then how then might you treat someone? Sure. You know what, and I know you know this because I think you just used this in one of your uh, philosophy classes that you're teaching, is Richard Hayes. Uh, moral vision of the New Testament. This the chapter. I, w- I hate for you to buy this whole book for this chapter. Maybe it is a great book. It's worth reading the whole book. Yeah, you Richard can skip Hayes. Some parts, but he's, it, he's it a is. duke, isn't he? Yes. Uh, Richard Hayes, moral vision of the New Testament, has a chapter on homosexuality. His treatment of the text and the people, the story he tells of his friend, is probably one of the best descriptions of understanding how to embrace the truth of the text and embrace people. Right. That, I, I thought that chapter was really well it's, done. It's really good. And I gave, one of the things I gave to my students is a summary of Hayes' arguments about the text. And maybe I'll post that on So We Speak at some point. So, by the way, before we leave this topic, a great accessible document, Robert Yarhouse, Y-A-R-H-O-U-S-E, Homosexuality in the Christian. He is a clinical psychologist, and most of his book is data which is good as opposed to feelings. Mm -hmm. But he also is a Christian, and he also has some very helpful thoughts on this. So I think Homosexuality and the Christian, uh, Hayes' book is awesome. Probably the gold standard for going verse by verse into unbelievable detail would be Robert Gagnon, G-A-G-N-O-N, and William Loader, 
L-O-A-D-E-R. Mm-hmm. They disagree on the topic. You'll find they disagree on very, very little of the exegesis, though. Right. Yeah, two accessible, very short treatments on this. I love um, Kevin DeYoung's What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality? Some people have criticized that for not having a very very pastoral tone to it. It's not very compassionate. Well, that's because it is exegesis through and through. That's what he claims it is. It's not a pastoral book. It is an exegetical book. And it, and it goes through all these arguments. Mm-hmm. And then Sam Albury's work is excellent. His, yeah. his He worked for uh, Ravi Zacharias Ministry. Um, I think now he's at a church in England. But he has a book, and correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't look this up beforehand, but I think the book is called Does God Hate Gays? And it is a very, mm-hmm. very good treatment of the issue from someone who does have same-sex attraction and has wrestled with a life of celibacy and has investigated the text. And so all of those are great resources at various different levels of engagement. Oh, yeah, as long as we're mentioning books. Rosaria Butterfield, probably one of the best things I've read, human, Mm -hmm. of going going from uh, to becoming a Christian through a lesbian lifestyle. I mean, and many other things in her lifestyle. Rosaria Butterfield, what is it? uh, Secrets of an Unlikely Convert. Secrets of an Unlikely Convert. It's just really interesting. And it's not there to change your mind. A lot of the pop stuff starts with a, hey, I want you to believe this. Right. I like hers because she just tells her story. It's a memoir. It reads like a memoir. It is a memoir. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very interesting and instructive. So I, I think those are great resources. Yeah. Okay, we'll move on to the second question. We'll, we'll uh, move a little faster on these. We'll <laughs> be here for the whole afternoon. Question number two, this is just a quick one. This is a, a question I, I, that I had gotten uh, both through the Barrett confirmation hearings and through the election. A lot of people are thinking about the, the core principles of America. And one of the questions I got was, what is the best resource on the Christian vision of the American founding? Do you have any handy go-tos on that? Yeah, that's a tough one for me. You probably have better uh, thoughts than I do on a one particular book. It's really interesting, by the way. I'll just say this, and I'll kick it back to you. When you read the Federalist Papers and you read the biographies of the founders, you realize even though they're not all, some are deist, mm-hmm. most are Christian, but you will see Judeo-Christian, Christian principles, very clear biblical principles woven all through it. The assumption of this country is that we will be a moral people, a religious people, and specifically a Christian people. Now, that doesn't mean everybody in America should be Christian or be thrown in jail. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm not saying that. But it does seem to be woven through it. I don't know if I know one volume that would be good. You've read probably more of that than I have. Well, it is, it is hard to find good volumes on this, and I, I think probably people out there maybe have one that they could send in. Just, yeah. uh, but the, the ones I typically go to, relatively new, Thomas Kidd, who is a historian mm-hmm. at Baylor, and I, now I think he teaches at Midwestern as well, actually, Midwestern Baptist. He has a two-volume American history textbook. Hmm. And you say textbook, and that immediately turns everybody off. It's written like a book book. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 not like you got to do uh, exercises at the end of every chapter. But it's written really well. It covers American history holistically, but it is very sensitive to the Christian influence in the founding. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of great books about the founding that I think you don't you don't have to be a Christian author to appreciate. If they're a good historian, right. they appreciate 
the factors and the ideas that were shaping the founding. So I would say it's not a Christian book, but 1776 by David McCullough is an excellent book about the founding. Any any good historian who is not trying to reread history through 21st century uh, worldviews mm-hmm. is going to have to acknowledge some unpleasant things for some people today, sure. and that is it was founded on Christian principles. Right. Bernard yeah. Balin's work is really yeah. good on this topic. I'll tell you one that's kind of interesting. This just came out in the last month, and I've just started it. Uh, but there's a book called First Principles by a guy named Ricks. He's a journalist, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner. And what he did was go back and look at the classical education yeah. of the first four presidents. So if you look at Washington, Adams, uh, Jefferson, and Madison, and you look at what they had read and what they thought about what they'd read and how they used the Roman and Greek authors that they were acquainted with, right. you start to see the founding principles at work. And this is a point I, I want to write on at some point and I, I think is needed you don't just have to believe that the founders had Christian ideals to have a bedrock with which to stand on. Most of our conversations about founding principles today in America don't even suit the pagan Greek, Greek and Roman founding principles right. that we had for this nation. So the, the Greeks and the Romans knew how to run a republic. Right. And they ended up in tyranny in certain ways, and you can learn a lot from that. And you know, when when you have Julius Caesar in right. the Roman Republic, you see people like Cicero, you know, talking right. about why that was so terrible, or Plutarch and people like that. Mm-hmm. Those people had very defined ideas about how to run a society. And while they are not explicitly Christian, the Greco-Roman vision for how people should live together and the Christian vision are a lot closer together than anything we have now in our neo-Marxist or critical right. race. Theories. You know, those things are not very similar. And so I would almost say for the people that don't want to admit that we had any kind of Christian influence in the founding, I would say, then let's talk about the Greco-Roman influence in the founding. And that's exactly what this book does. He's talking about those principles as well. And so those really are the bedrocks of what the founders were doing through the writings of John Locke, Edmund Burke, uh, all the way back through to Cicero and Seneca and, Uh and all of those ancients, but certainly because they were reading their Bibles. So question number three is from one of the series that you've been doing. So you've been teaching the life of David. Right. uh, And there's all kinds of great lessons and stories there. But uh, you've got a lot of great questions in your Wednesday night class. And one of them that I wanted to re-up on is you mentioned a really interesting thing that you discovered about uh, David and Jonathan and their friendship that I think a lot of people don't know. Yeah, you just if you, unless you just stop and think about it, because the clues are there for us. We tend to think of because we just as we read it and we see their friendship, we tend to think of these guys were like high school buddies. They probably played on the football team together. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe went to different colleges, came back together. They had this lifelong friendship. You know, they were fraternity brothers or whatever. Right. But if you just look at the text, it's actually even neater than that. I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, mm-hmm. their relationship is is true, something our culture doesn't understand, and that is a man's love for a man, a woman's love for a woman, as a comrade. Mm-hmm. We don't think that love, love and sex are almost synonymous. 
Although you know, people make that argument about David and Jonathan. Well, they, yeah, which is another silly argument to make in the sense that, well, that's a very obvious if you're reading this text through 21st century mores because you don't, in, in our culture, in our humanist culture, you don't really think there is such a thing as love without sex. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of silly because if you talk to a lot of guys that fought in World War II, a lot of guys that fought in Vietnam, you realize, oh my goodness, you're missing out on the true bonds of friendship deep friendship. So I think it's cool that they had that, but you actually see, and when you look at the clues to their ages, just follow this logic. So the book of Acts in the New Testament tells us that Saul reigned for 40 years. And the book of 1 Samuel tells us that in the second year of his reign, Jonathan was leading part of the army. So Jonathan's got to be 20 years old or more. I mean, he might be older, but it's hard. It's just you don't see this happening with the Israelites historically that you're an 18 year old leading an army. Right. Even if he was 18, it doesn't change my argument. The point is, he's probably 20 ish at that time. So, Jonathan is, if you think about it, he's about 20 years old, two years in, which means he's about 50 years old when he dies with his father. Well, the second Samuel tells us that David is 30 years old when he becomes king. And he becomes king then. So at the time Jonathan dies, Jonathan's probably about 58. Mm-hmm. I mean, he met right around there, within yeah. a few years either way. And David is 30. Right. And so let's go backwards in time. When David kills Goliath, comes in to the thing, he's probably a late teenager or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jonathan's probably 25 years older. It may be uh, David is 18 years old and Jonathan is 43. Right. And so you see this friendship across generations. Yes. And that's something that people don't think about, but the clues are there in the text. And to me, that makes this an even more astounding mm-hmm. story of their friendship and Jonathan being able to say, look, God's anointed you king. I'm going to be your number two guy. That's in our culture. That would be something two 25-year-olds might say to each other. But is mm-hmm. that something a 45-year-old? would say to a 20-something, well, it is for Jonathan, mm-hmm. which makes me respect him even more. Yeah, I think that makes our friendship even more remarkable. The last question comes from another series that you've been teaching, which is kind of a, a, a primer on the theological uh, doctrines, basic systematic theology. Christian beliefs. Yeah. And I actually have a question for you on that. Oh, wow. We got into the topic of salvation, you know, what do Christians believe about salvation? And we had some questions about, okay, what about predestination? What is it? What do Christians believe about predestination? I'm going to give you the really short version of what I said. I put up every verse in the New Testament that uses the word prohorizo, predestination. Mm-hmm. And there aren't many. There are like eight uses in six verses or seven in five, something like that. And we looked at each one. And so you realize right away from Acts chapter 4 that the word predestination oftentimes refers to events or outcomes that are destined. You know, that God destined that Christ would be crucified and raised and Herod and Pontius Pilate willfully did those things. But it also is used in the sense of salvation. And it comes down to the word election is very closely tied to this. Mm-hmm. God Predestination means something God deciding beforehand, and election meaning God choosing. So those two ideas are, are very closely aligned. And one big school of understanding the Bible. I don't want to say a person thought this, or this is a theory. I mean, this is a, what Calvin understood the scriptures to say. Again, 
It's not Calvin's opinion. It's what he understood the scriptures to say, and that is God unconditionally chooses people. He literally decided, as Ephesians said, before the foundation of the world, that you coal fakes were going to respond to the gospel, that you are going to be a believer, that you are going to be a Christ follower, however you want to organize those words. John Wesley, on the other hand, read the same Bible, but he understood it just a little bit differently. And they're just a hair's breadth apart. And he said, you know, I think the election is conditional in this sense, that God gives you enough grace that you are actually able to respond to his grace by the hearing of the word. So the idea of unconditional and conditional election, God predestining according to his own purposes, or as Wesley would say, God predestining based on what he foreknew. Well, most of the people kind of understood intuitively the idea that God could see the future and he would know Mm -hmm. who would respond, and so he destined them. Mm -hmm. But they had a harder time, Cole, with the idea of what what could be comforting or what is natural about the idea of God choosing unconditionally had nothing to do with whether he foreknew what you might Mm-hmm. Uh, want to do. That's one that, that a lot of people, I didn't really tee that up very well for you, but if you see those two nuanced uh, understandings of the Bible, I think it's harder for people to understand the, the classic Calvinist idea of predestination. So let me kick it over to you and just say, what is, uh, I mean, it is a, a biblical belief. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not saying go support it from the scriptures. We read scriptures that say, well, it sure looks like mm-hmm. God is doing this predestining. Uh, what is comforting about that? Why would somebody uh, adopt that other than the fact that they honestly believe the text says that? But what? how would you come to terms with that? Well, th- th- this is a really good question because it hits at the pastoral aspect of the doctrine itself. Mm-hmm. And like you said, we, we, could, we could talk about the doctrine. I think there's different ways to construe the doctrine, uh, some better than others, some that lead to more uh, pastoral conversations than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what strikes me about the passages in the Bible about predestination is an election. Almost all of them are useful in an argument that Paul's making about something else. Right. So you don't have a single section in the Bible where election is the point. Other than maybe Romans 9, but I would even argue that Romans 9 is, is being used as a part of a different argument Right. To talk about the reconciliation between the Jews being the people of God and yet the Gentiles being grafted in. Now, that one's maybe the most explicit about the point of this passage is election. But when you get to places like Ephesians 1, for example, that you mentioned, yeah. he's he's in an opening where he's talking about how wonderful and great it is that God has chosen us so that we can be assured of our growth, God's love for us, his, our inheritance. You know, our inheritance in him, what he has done for us mm-hmm. and will continue to do. You know, the word isn't used in Philippians 1.6, but people use this verse all the time. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at yes. the day of Jesus Christ. That is a hugely comforting verse because when you feel like God has given up on you or mm-hmm. you feel like something that God started in you has lost steam, you turn to something like that and you say, I'm trusting that God is going to bring this to completion. 
Well, the reason that he's going to bring it to completion is because he has chosen. He is destined and because, to be. Yeah. You know, if you combine that with a passage like Romans 5, 8, for example. Mm-hmm. Romans 5, you open up, you say, we have been reunited with God. We've been reconciled to him through right. our Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderful is this? And Paul can barely believe it because he's saying, you know, you might die for a really good person. Maybe. Probably right. not. Right. You would not die for a mediocre person. You definitely wouldn't die for a bad person. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do you explain that? Right. Well, we didn't choose him. Right. We didn't want anything to have to do with him. How do you explain the fact that at some point your heart responded to God? Whether we argue the prevenient grace route or right. you know unconditional election route, at some point God was choosing you when you weren't choosing him. And praise God for that because otherwise you would never have become a Christian. Yeah. And the second part of that, and you, you see this in places like Romans 8. Romans 8 is a very comforting passage. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up, how, how can we say that he won't give us all things? Right. Or who can bring any charge against God's elect? Right. If God is for, for us, us, who can be against us? And how does Paul argue? How do we know that these promises are true? God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then in the next verse, Romans 8, 29. People, a lot of people quote Romans 8, 28 right. and stop before Romans 8. How do we know the promises of Romans 8 are true? Because... God is going to complete the process he started. He foreknows, he uh, predestines, he justifies, he glorifies. Right. That golden chain is what people refer to Romans yeah. 8.29. That golden chain is not going to be broken because of God's election. So I think one of the reasons that this is comforting is because that's how it's used as a doctrine in the New Testament. It's used that way in the Old Testament in a little bit different way. Right. It's a much more corporate sense in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, I think you get a lot of passages that anchor the comfort and the hope that we have that God really is going to do what he says he's going to do based on the doctrine of election. And I'll add one more piece to this. Mm-hmm. If you read Paul specifically, you get a little bit of this in John as well. But if you read Paul specifically, when Paul is making a defense against the, the question, why do bad things happen to good people? So if he's if he's talking about the problem of evil or suffering right. in the New Testament, he almost never does what we are tempted to do, which is to say, you won't suffer forever, or it's going to work out well in the end, mm-hmm. or you really aren't suffering, exactly. you just need to change your perspective. He, did, he almost never does that. What he does in almost every one of those circumstances is he says... Remember that God called you. Mm -hmm. And remember that God reached out to you when you were at your worst. And he knows that from his own life. So he says that. God reached out to me, the worst of sinners. And the Greek, that one says, the lowest, the lower than the lowest of sinners. And if he did that, then he will preserve you through this trial. That's how Paul almost always argues about suffering is don't look forward, look back backward. If you're suffering right now, look backward and say, God called me to be his child. He reconciled me. He gave me a new heart. He gave me the Holy Spirit. He created me anew to do good works that he's planned out. How could I think that he's not going to deliver me through this? If he's done that, he can do this. That's how that doctrine is used 
all over the New Testament. And I think that's an immensely comforting uh, promise that we have as believers. You know, that's a really great answer to that because... Uh, for two reasons. One, I'm not trying to change anybody's mind about this. As I tell my class, I'm perfectly comfortable uh, whichever side of this you're on, as long as you're committed to what the Bible says. The bigger question becomes is, you know, you sometimes hear people say, I don't know if I can believe in a God who has chosen ahead of time without any input from me. And I think you've turned that around because the scripture does use this, not so much in terms of who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. That's not how this gets used. It gets used to say, hey, listen, exactly what you said. This should be a guarantee that he unconditionally went to the cross before you ever did anything. Mm -hmm. And that should be comfort. I'll tell you the greatest comfort to me uh, is Ephesians 1. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it goes on to say, so we should be holy. It tells us why, to what purpose. We should be holy and blameless. He predestined us to be adopted into the family. I mm -hmm. paraphrase that a little bit. He predestined us to be adopted into the family. And you stop and you think, you know, most of the time when I feel inadequate, I am because I have sinned. But then I feel like that's damaged my standing with God. But then I read that verse and I realize, wait a minute, that can't damage my standing with God because he already decided, Christ already died on the cross. As long as I continue to turn to him in repentance, this is already decided. And, and you know, that's, the, that's what I think most people don't think about is they go, oh, wait a minute, turn that around. And you realize that's incredibly comforting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things you have to remember is the doctrine of election is always addressed to believers in the New Testament. Exactly. The doctrine of election is not an evangelistic tool. No matter how many cage stage Calvinists believe that that's the way you should do evangelism <laughs> with, you know, tulip, uh, this doctrine is always addressed to believers in the New Testament. And that doesn't mean I don't think it's objectively true, yep. you know, for, for non believers as well, but it's not something that is used. That's a very uh, good point. When you're talking to non-believers in the New Testament, it's something used to assure and remind and shore up the faith of believers in churches, especially when they're suffering in the New Testament. That's when this doctrine is typically mentioned. One other question related to that is, uh, if you thought, and I'm just going to give a popular question, if you thought that God had already decided who was going to go to heaven, Okay, that's not a great way to state that, but that's how you would yes. popularly state that. Then why preach the gospel? And, you know, my answer to that, I'll let you expand on it, is here's one where both Wesley and Calvin are both standing up yelling the same answer. And mm -hmm. that is because God has decided that the preaching of the word is how his chosen will be identified. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're both yelling the exact same words there. Yeah, I don't see how you get around this, even if you're not talking about election. Um, because either you believe that God has decreed beforehand who is going to be saved and not saved, and he's decreed that it's going to happen through the preaching of the word or through visions and through other means, but it's going to happen through the spread of the gospel. Or you don't believe that God has chosen. In fact, you don't think he has anything to do with it, in which case your best hope is the most persuasive gospel presentation you can make banking on the fact that this person is going to be convinced mm -hmm. beyond their own best interests, beyond their own beliefs, beyond their own propensities to turn and give their whole heart to God. Either way, you're in a bad situation if you don't believe that we should be preaching the gospel. And so 
I would say there are hyper-Calvinists who, I think this is probably more of a caricature than reality, but there are hyper-Calvinists who believe that you shouldn't preach the gospel, that God will just save the people that he wants to save. Mm -hmm. But the biblical witness is just so univocally against this that the way that God is going to save people is through the preaching of the gospel. How can they hear? Or how how can they believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear if somebody doesn't preach? And Paul says that in Romans 11. And blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's there's a doctrine, the, the doctrinal term for this is called the divine preference for human agency. Mm-hmm. This is something you see across the Bible. God, yes, God could do everything himself uh, and not involve humans at all. Right. He could just do it without other humans interacting with other humans. Right. But God somehow, in his wisdom, has chosen to, or prefers, the way the term puts it, to use human agents to accomplish his will. And that's as true in comfort as it is in evangelism. It's as true in discipleship as it is in preaching. Everything across the New Testament and the Old Testament, we see God using people. He prefers to use human agents. So, um, you know, that can be tough to parse out. I don't think that that it's easy to understand how all this fits together, but that's clearly what Scripture teaches. I think that's exactly right. Here's a a non-theological way of understanding it. I just talked about we were predestined to be adopted into the family, and I I think of it as God wants us in the family business. I don't like this God's joining us in our work. I don't like that at all. I think he said, yeah, I think he said, I'm going to bring you into my family. Now, daughter, son, come with me. We have work to do. I want you to be about my work in the world. And so I, that's how I would understand, in a very just common way, God's preference for human agency. He wants his kids to be about the kingdom business in the world. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.